Luke chapter four, uh, we have the continuation of uh, the story of Jesus, his introduction um, to his early ministry. Uh, and of course, we see that this begins uh, with um, the, this follows the temptation in the wilderness, uh, but it um, also follows uh, Jesus introducing himself in his hometown of Nazareth. He's there, um, as we studied last week, he's there in a synagogue, as was his custom to be in the synagogue on Saturday, teaching with uh, the people who would have known him most closely. Um, there are friends there. There are people who have witnessed his upbringing. Uh, and there, um, he reveals himself um, through the reading of the scroll of Isaiah, where he proclaims um, two sections in scripture, Isaiah 60. Uh, one, I believe, and also 58, where he uh, says, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he goes on to elaborate to say that this is fulfilled today in your hearing. He's making an explicit claim about who he is. And in doing so, they are impressed with his, uh, with his ability to uh, be a strong order. They are impressed with his rhetorical skills, but they are not so impressed with his claims. Um, and they uh, outrightly reject him and seek to uh, kill him. They seek to destroy him. Uh, but now we find, as he comes uh, out of that area and he goes away, he comes now to a new region, uh, a city of Capernaum. Uh, Luke describes it this way in verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astounded at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So immediately we get a contrast here uh, between Nazareth, uh, which is the hometown of Jesus, and we get a contrast between the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is uh, located in a region that is quite a bit of, of a distance away from Nazareth. It's on the northwest shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and this was uh, a major economic center for the Jewish people. They had much agriculture, fishing, um, and the like, uh, but this becomes kind of home base uh, for Jesus's new ministry opportunities. And as he makes his way through Capernaum, <clears throat> he takes up much of what he was doing previously, uh, his teachings that took place on Sabbath. This was his continuation of that work of um, that he was a teacher. Uh, he was expounding upon and sharing the word of God. He was sharing God's message as, uh, as um, he had opportunity within the synagogues. And he would go and when the congregations would meet, he would take his place there and uh, as he had opportunity would share. Uh, and so this was a practice that he observed um, both in this earlier region um, that, was, that is described uh, in verses, uh, verse 14 of chapter four, but also now uh, in Nazareth. And as we come to verse 31 and 32, we see that this takes place in the city of Capernaum. 
and so as he's there, he begins to do this similar work that he has proclaimed uh, in uh, the city of Nazareth, just like he did in the previous uh, city. He would sit down and uh, stand to read the scriptures. He would sit down to teach and proclaim. Uh, and as he did so, uh, he had a similar effect, but this group uh, appeared to be uh, slightly more receptive. Um, we see how Luke describes it here in verse uh, 32. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, this group of people, they uh, hear Jesus's teachings regularly on the Sabbath, and as he proclaims uh, the scriptures, uh, they are absolutely blown away. They are astonished at his teaching, and we're told that that uh, the reason for their astonishment is because his word possessed authority. Now, what what Luke is getting at there is that Jesus does not operate in the in the uh, practical ways that the other rabbis operated. Uh, the rabbis of this time would teach from tradition. They would uh, read the scripture and then they would go ahead and expound upon it based on uh, what other rabbis have said. They would say, well, you know, this rabbi has said this and he's remarked upon this and there's this other scripture and he, this other rabbi has said this. But Jesus, when he would come to the text, he would handle it directly. He would say, I'm saying this. He wouldn't say, well, this rabbi has said this. He doesn't take the time to um, put into practice these other things that the other rabbis did because he did not need an authority that was beyond himself. He was the authority. He did speak from his own position. And so he would expand upon uh, the scriptures without consulting others. He would expand upon the scriptures without looking to what other people have said, because he himself is the word of God. He, as he speaks, so it is. And so he takes the written words of scripture and elaborates upon them with authority because he is the author of these things. And as he does so, of course, there's going to be a contrast that takes place here. The scriptures uh, come forth and they are seen as authoritative uh, and his word is seen as authoritative because he is the author he is the author of the scriptures. And so, of course, it's going to be powerful. Of course, it's going to be convicting. Of course, it's going to be forceful. Now, this is a, a perspective that we ought to hold as people who are reading the scriptures. Whenever we come to the text, we've got to remember that this is not just some good ideas. This is not just uh, a... Uh, a recommendation, but these are words that are meant to uh, convict, rebuke, exhort. They're meant to point us to Jesus. These words are authoritative, and so we ought to receive them with thanksgiving in that way. We ought to remember that these things are being said to us as if Jesus was saying them to us. Uh, too often, we want to put our own perspective 
on the weight of scripture. And we don't say, well, you know, like, I don't, not really sure about this, or I don't really believe that, but we've got to think about it in such a way as if uh, Jesus is communicating these things to us. Put yourself in the place of those who are in the synagogue and who are hearing the words spoken and expounded upon and, and receive them as if uh, Jesus himself is speaking to you. Because the reality is for the believer, as we come to the scripture, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and leads us into truth that points us back to Christ. And so as we come to the scriptures, we ought to be excited that the God of all creation is willing to speak to us, that he is wanting to speak to us, that it is a, mir a miracle that he is communing with us through his word. And what an opportunity that we have to treasure the scriptures an opportunity for us to rejoice over what he has given to us. And so when you come to the text, don't, don't treat it lightly. Treat it with expectation, with excitement, that there is an opportunity for God to work in your life, to speak directly into your circumstance, into your situation. And it's important for us to understand that because uh, a lot of times, um, you know, we want to be approaching the scriptures, but we just go through the motions. We're just kind of like, you know, we're not really paying attention in the same way that we would be as if Jesus himself was standing here before us and we'd be captivated. Uh, but this is what he has entrusted to us at the moment, an opportunity for us to uh, engage his word uh, wholeheartedly. Now, as Jesus is unpacking the scriptures for this group of people in the synagogue, he is interrupted. He's interrupted. We find this interruption takes place in verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Okay, so Jesus has got the scriptures. He's teaching. He's sharing. And at this time, there is present in the synagogue a person who is demon-possessed. Now, as this takes place, this is a helpful reminder for us. This is a helpful reminder for us. Just because you are with God's people doesn't mean that you are God's people, right? Uh, we don't want to make that assumption. I'm not saying here now that, uh, that there are people who are, you know, in our church who are demon-possessed. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we ought to consider whether some of us are just in the Zoom room or we're in the building, but maybe we're not actually in the body of Christ. There's a real consideration for the people of God that, you know, if a demon-possessed man could sneak in among the synagogue with all these other uh, God-fearing people who are trying to obey the law, how easy would it be for us to overlook, you know, our lack of desire, our lack of pursuit of the Lord? We want to be mindful of these things and make sure that we're not just in the building, but we're in the body. We want to be a part and connected to the body of Christ. We want to uh, be on guard against uh, that lazy uh, Christianity, that lazy religiosity. We want to be wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord. And so, again, I'm not saying that, you know, there's like some demon possession or anything like that here, but I am saying that it is easy for someone here like this to slip into the synagogue uh, with all these people, we've got to be on guard as well, that we want to count the cost ourselves. We want to make sure that we are wholeheartedly pursuing him and coming in in the proper way. Now, this man here is among these people, and Jesus knows it. 
The people don't know it, but Jesus knows it. And we find here that this uh, man is described as having a spirit of an unclean demon. Now, this, of course, is a very practical way uh, and a repetitive way that uh, demon possession is often described uh, throughout the scriptures, uh, particularly in a description of evil spirits here. Uh, it's an unclean spirit, uh, which or an unclean demon uh, is what, what our text says here. Uh, unclean in the sense that um, this is not holy, of course, uh, but also that perhaps that this uh, spirit was causing this uh, man to participate in unclean things as well. And so what we find here now is um, a continuing narrative, right? So, so track with me here, a continuing narrative with Jesus facing uh, the spirit of, uh, uh, of demons. Now, let me rewind the tape and take you back to uh, the previous section in verse uh, 12, verse 12. If you go back to verse 12, this is the continuing uh, section of the continuation or the, I guess, the end section of Jesus's the pinnacle of the temple and, uh, you know, the scriptures say that God will rescue you. And, and Jesus responds back there to him uh, with the truth of scripture. He cites uh, the truth of scripture and he tells him in verse 12, uh, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then we get this description here. Uh, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, of course, uh, we don't find in the uh, continuing texts that Satan is uh, personally at work to bring these temptations uh, or opposition into Jesus's life. But we do find uh, that what Satan was trying to do in the temptation narrative here, trying to get Jesus to, uh, to doubt his sonship, getting Jesus to demonstrate that he uh, is who he said he is. If you look at some of the previous um, sections there in in uh, that temptation narrative, he kept saying to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command this stone to be bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. He's trying to get him to doubt. Uh, and, and and this is a continuing narrative here to to put Jesus in the place of like, hey, like show us who you, who you said you were. If you, if you are, this should be pretty easy. But then we get, as Jesus comes to... Uh, demonstrate that he is the son of God as he makes this claim uh, in the synagogue of Nazareth in, uh, in, in verses uh, 16 through 30 here, we get that Jesus makes this claim and they tell him, Jesus tells them, you're saying in your own heart, like, is this, isn't this just Joseph's son? You're not, the, you're not the son of God. You're not who you're claiming to be here. And they're taking on that same spirit that Satan had, trying to get Jesus to be like, hey, like put some, put some miracles on display. Show us some things. Do, do your thing here. Impress us. If you're really the son of God, show us what you have here. And now for the third time, now Jesus comes up against demonic opposition. So even though Satan himself has departed until an opportune time, 
the attacks continue to come. He's faced Satan himself. He's faced this demonic attitude and opposition, uh, the same lies that the enemy was telling to uh, Adam in the garden, uh, the same lies that we find um, that continue with us today. These same things are being offered now uh, to Jesus in this demonic opposition in our text this morning. And so there's a confrontation between Jesus and this demonic opposition again. Remember, Jesus is who he says he is, and he's trying to display this to people. He's trying to uh, bring people into the kingdom of God. And so as he's here in the synagogue, again, here pops up an unclean demon, the spirit of an unclean uh, demon. And so uh, as Jesus is teaching, he's doing his thing, uh, we get an interruption. There's a reaction to the presence of Jesus in the middle of this uh, uh, exposition that Jesus is giving. And he, uh, we, we get this loud shriek, this loud cry. Uh, Luke describes it in verse 33 as uh, crying out with a loud voice. So a boisterous interruption, uh, this big emotional outburst uh, where Luke describes it here for us with this ha, which could be um, any uh, it's, it's an expression of emotion and uh, an emotional outburst and interjection. Um, it could be also a, uh, you know, this, um, expression of surprise, like he's caught off guard that Jesus is here and this, uh, is not pleased about it. Uh, it, and, and we find that this man who is filled with this unclean spirit, this demon, he speaks out and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, you know, and I know that this man is filled with a demon. But there could be some things that are happening here uh, for the hearers in this room. Perhaps Jesus is getting up and he's proclaiming this new way. He's trying to uh, say that I've come to uh, bring life. I've come to bring my kingdom. And all of a sudden, this man comes up and uh, these people, clearly unaware that he's filled with the demon, um, are now coming, hearing him speak and saying, uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Perhaps in one sense, he's speaking here to bring distraction. Perhaps in one sense here, he's, uh, he's seeking to uh, strike fear in the hearts of these people. Don't listen to Jesus. His message is going to destroy us all. But at the same time, at the same time, uh, as he says this, uh, he is speaking uh, simultaneously to, uh, to the fact that um, Jesus is also facing uh, this particular, the, the demonic spirit, but also the demonic spirit who is uh, controlling this human. In, in a sense, it seems like what's also happening here is that uh, he is saying, Jesus, if you're going to try to come for us, if you're going to try to try to come and destroy, you're going to have to you're going to have to kill this man. If you want to get rid of me, in order to get me, you're also going to have to to actually destroy this individual. I rule this individual, and I am not leaving without a fight, and I will take him down. And that is exactly the attitude uh, that Satan often has. He, 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 knows, he knows that he's lost the battle. Uh, 
And so he's in a position where he's just trying to take as many people with them as possible. He's trying to destroy as much as possible. Jesus tells us that Satan's motive is one of stealing, killing, and destroying. He's laid it out for us in John 10, that he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is his work, his purpose, his mission. And Jesus is all about saving. He has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Now, here, this uh, man who's demon-possessed, uh, the uh, this evil spirit is speaking out and bringing this challenge before Jesus. You want to, you want to get rid of this? You're going to have to kill us both. You're going to have, you're, I'll go down, but I'm taking this guy with me. It's kind of what he's getting at. It was kind of what he's saying here. Um, and then simultaneously to that, it would also be true to say in hindsight that we see that perhaps this evil spirit's also saying like, like, I know that you've come to destroy us. Like as in all the evil spirits, all the, the demonic realm. Because as soon as he says this, he transitions to a new uh, revelation that perhaps is unheard for this group of people in the synagogue. Uh, this uh, evil spirit has supernatural insight into the nature of Jesus's mission, his purpose, uh, his work. That's what makes him fearful. That's what makes him... Uh, like um, apprehensive at Jesus's presence. He, he says here um, in verse 34, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are. Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth, as he initially says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. I know you are the Holy One of God. You have a special mission, a special anointing. You are God's Messiah. You are his suffering servant. I know who you are. Now, what's remarkable about this is that the testimony of this particular demon does a couple things. It draws, uh, it gives us insight and it draws a contrast. First, the insight. This demon has testified that Jesus is the Holy One of God. So we have confirmation by this particular demon that Jesus has successfully uh, endured the temptations of Satan in, in the wilderness. He says, look, I know you're still the Holy One of God. I know you're still on mission. He's saying, I know you made it through that trial. He's saying that Jesus is absolutely pure. He has not been corrupted. You are the Holy One of God our temptations in the wilderness, they have absolutely failed. But now, uh, so that gives us the insight, but then it also gives us the contrast. Because as he says that, uh, that Jesus is the Holy One of God, he's not just Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Holy One of God. He's a contrast with the people of Nazareth who had the demonic spirit. The people of Nazareth heard of what Jesus had done. They had heard his Jesus's own testimony about himself and they said, no, nah, you're just Joseph's son. But even the demon recognizes, you're not just Jesus of Nazareth. You're not just Joseph's son. You are the Holy One of God. It's absolutely uh, a bit of irony here that the people who lived among Jesus, who knew Jesus, who were Jesus's city that he, he lived in, 
they rejected him. They didn't appreciate who he was, but this demon knows who he is. This reminds us of the text in in James chapter uh, two. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They shudder. They understand. They have better theology than you do. They have better theology than all of us because they know what is right and true. They just reject it. And so the spirit of rejecting the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, is to have that same uh, demonic spirit to reject it in the way that the people of Nazareth rejected it. And so we find that this uh, man who is filled with this unclean spirit now goes into battle here uh, saying, you're not going to take me down, Jesus. If you come at me, I'm going to take this guy down. So the battle now happens between this unclean spirit and Jesus who has the Holy Spirit. So unclean spirit versus God, this is not going to end well uh, for this demon. So we read in verse 35, Jesus, his response is very quick. Uh, and he starts uh, simply in verse 35 with, by rebuking him. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done no harm. So Jesus' response, lightning fast, he exercises authority and uh, rebukes this unclean spirit. Now, remember, this is in the middle of the synagogue. Like everybody's here. This guy interrupts. Jesus is like, yo, it's time to knock that off. Be silent. Come out of him. Uh, now, when he does this, again, remember, the people were already astonished at his teaching. Right? They were astonished at his teaching. Uh because his word possessed authority. And again here, we see that he is demonstrating that authority before this group of people. He has authority in his words. He doesn't use rituals or formulas. He doesn't use incantations. He's not got hand motions or things don't have to be done in a particular order. Jesus's word is powerful. And it's a demonstration that he has sovereign authority over all. He speaks and it is done. He speaks into this situation and it is fixed. He rescues. And he tells this spirit, be silent. So first, a uh, silencing of this voice and then a uh, command for him to come out. Now, as you, um, as you hear this, Jesus tells him to be silent. The thing is, is that this spirit has not really said anything that would, would be uh, incorrect, in a sense, uh, theologically, other than he's saying, like, you're going to have to, I'm going to fight, basically. He has testified correctly to who Jesus is, but yet Jesus tells him, you're not saying anything anymore. I'm not giving you any voice anymore. This, this, uh, this man who was declaring who Jesus is, you might've thought like, well, at least like that would have been helpful. But Jesus cuts him off and says, you're not gonna be that voice. Jesus does not want to be uh, proclaimed by someone who is opposed to him. He does not want to be 
proclaimed in this moment as someone who is um, who is uh, a demonic figure. He does not want to be proclaimed by somebody who is um, going to miscategorize his mission. He doesn't want to be known here as uh, the um, like the demon exerciser. He does not want to be uh, known simply as that. He's got a greater mission, a deeper mission beyond this. And we find uh, that that mission is wrapped up in the action. It, it's, it's visible to us. His deeper mission is visible to us in the action that takes place. Jesus tells him, be silent and come out of him. And then Luke notes for us, he came out of him having done him no harm. So Jesus's word goes forth uh, and the spirit has to obey the word of the sovereign Lord. And in the process, we find that two things happen. Jesus is victorious. He absolutely wins. He has absolute victory. And number two, the man is victorious. The demonic spirit loses, but the man is victorious. He emerges from this interaction with Jesus unharmed. Luke tells us he came out of him having done no harm. Even though the spirit said, I'm going to take him down. I'm going to win. You're going to have to kill us both. Jesus is powerful enough to defeat the demon without allowing him to have control over harming this man. Now, I want you to see here that this man, this individual, is victorious and unharmed when Jesus does the work that the man himself cannot do. The man is victorious when Jesus is able to do the work that the man himself cannot do. If the man remains in this state, he remains harmed. He remains out of control. He remains possessed. He remains enslaved. But when Jesus is allowed to do his work, victory comes by Jesus to the man, and he emerges unharmed. This only happens when you allow Jesus to do the work because the man cannot do the work himself. He cannot cast out his own demon. And the result here is that, that the enemy is defeated. The man is protected. When Jesus does his work, the enemy is defeated and man is protected. God's power in this moment overcomes evil and he expresses that power through Jesus. He puts that power on display. And so in this moment, we have a, a tiny microcosm of the gospel on display because man dead in our sins and trespasses cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We are enslaved. We are in, in bondage to the evil one, to Satan. We are dead. But it's only when Jesus gets involved, it's only when he steps in and rescues that we are, are brought to life and not just life, life abundantly. Remember, the thief, the enemy, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. He has made that way possible. He has accomplished that work. And so when Jesus is allowed to do his work, the enemy is defeated and we are given new life. We emerge unharmed. All of the sin that we should be paying for, all of the, the judgment that we should be receiving, we 
emerge unharmed because he has already done the work. He has accomplished the work. We get this, this moment here of the gospel on display, a foreshadowing of what is experienced for all believers on the other side of the cross. And the result here is that this group of people see Jesus' power, they see his authority, and they are even more amazed. They already thought that his word had authority, but now they see that he commands the supernatural realm. Look at verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They're, they're absolutely blown away at Jesus' ability to command the, the supernatural realm. And they say, what is this word? What is this word? Remember, this is connected to Jesus' teaching. I really wonder, I mean, we don't know, but I really wonder what Jesus, like what scriptures he was actually expounding at the moment. I wonder if this is like a, a practical example of the scriptures that he is teaching at the moment. But what we do know is that this uh, particular moment is a practical uh, example of what John had said of Jesus. Remember at the baptism, John had said, there's, there's one who's coming after me uh, who, is, who is mightier than I. Here is an example of the mightier one, that he is commanding the spirits. He has a teaching with power and authority, and his teaching is uh, about his demonstration of who he is. His word is power. His, his testimony is his power. And he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. All are under his rule. And as they witness this, the people then go and spread the report. Verse 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The reports about him went out in every place into the surrounding region. This, uh, the people who witnessed this event, it made an impression on them, of course. Like they saw this amazing thing and news begins to circulate. It goes out. The report becomes this highlight about how there was a man who was enslaved to this demon. He was even unaware that he was enslaved. The people who he was among were unaware. But as, as he encounters Jesus, the word of God uh, spoken into his life rescues him and the man uh, emerges unharmed and victorious when Jesus is allowed to do his work. And this raises questions about Jesus. Who is this guy that he can do this? Who, who is he that is able to accomplish this work? Of course, this leads to the answers that he is God himself, come to rescue and save. Again, we have a, a foreshadowing of what would be accomplished. Jesus rescues and saves. The person who is enslaved comes to, uh, comes to salvation. They are rescued and saved by Jesus through his word. He, they emerge victorious, unharmed, not because of their work, but because of Jesus's work. And then when the result of that is that people are so blown away that this man is rescued and saved, that they go and tell. They go and tell. They go and tell other people about him. Word went out in the surrounding region. This is the work of the people of God, that we are people who aren't just like, oh, that's cool. Jesus is a cool guy. 
If you have been rescued and saved by Jesus, you want to talk about him. You want to be blown away by him. You want to be a people who are going and sharing about that good news. You are gossiping that among other people. Isn't Jesus so good? He has rescued me. He saved me. He has given me life. He's given me abundant life. He's allowed me to overcome Satan, sin, and death. He has reminded me again and again when I'm tempted to place my trust in other things, when I'm, when I'm, a, when I'm someone who's tempted to, to focus upon the cares of this world, when I'm living that life of, of comparison and seeing how, what other people are doing and I'm comparing myself against uh, how other people are living. He reminds me that, that he is my satisfaction. He is my joy. He is my hope that he provides everything that I need. Uh, he does that work for us and we want to, to encourage and build each other up and remind each other of that great work together. And so it's the, the job and responsibility of all disciples of Christ to rejoice over Christ. And that happens uh, when, when we do that, when we, when we rejoice over Christ and we, we speak about his great work in our lives uh, together within the body of Christ, that's that, that idea there of doing that is us worshiping when we're talking about how good God is with one another, when we're, when we're encouraging each other, uh, when, when someone is discouraged and we're bringing to them a word of encouragement uh, about Jesus, that exalts Jesus, that points each other to Jesus, that practice there is a, a practice of encouragement, but it's also an act of worship. We're pointing people back to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Remind us to set our eyes back on him. Now, that same work, when done with non-believers, people who don't trust in Jesus for salvation, when we do that same work and we hear what they're doing and they haven't placed their trust in Jesus and we're introducing him to, the, to them for the, for the first time or we're trying to get them to trust in Jesus for the first time, that, that's a work of, of mission. We're trying to get them to do the same thing outside of the church, but just so they can do it inside of the church and we can enjoy Jesus together. And so it's the same idea that you can cultivate the practical worship life of pointing people to Jesus within the body of Christ and the training ground of, of grace where we're able to make mistakes with one another and we're able to, um, to uh, have this common language where we learn to worship Jesus together. And then you take that outside and learn how to apply that to other people who don't know Jesus. It's our responsibility to as people who have been raised from the dead, as people who are dead in our sins, who we've been given new life, as people who are emerging unharmed to now go and say, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has rescued me. And you look like you're in need of rescue too. And let me tell you about how I've been rescued. It's as simple as that. You're telling people what about your own story, what you needed how it was helpful for you, how you've been rescued, how you've been saved. You don't have to convince people of other, other people's stories. We each have a testimony. We each have a story. We each, uh, each of us perhaps were, were this man and he's rescued and saved us. And it's through that work that we are able to speak authoritatively about what he's done. Because we can't deny that. He has done that work on our behalf and it brought us into our family. And we simply want to extend that invitation to others. 
And so I hope that as you study this text, as you go through your week, that you will look for those opportunities to extend that invitation to others to worship, whether that's within the body of Christ and saying like, here's what God's showing me. Here's how good he is. Here's what, uh, you know, what, can someone help me? Can someone point me to him? I want to see him more. I'm struggling. Or whether that would be outside of the church in a work of evangelism by telling people of the good news so that they would come and worship. A practical text, a practical opportunity. I would encourage you to tell your own story because you know it better than anybody else. You know how he's rescued you, how he saved you. So step forward in that boldness as he's given you his Holy Spirit. Step forward in that boldness to be excited. To be excited about what he's done in your life. Uh, and you can share that with others. It'll be incredibly powerful because it's his work. It's not your work. And it's his job to rescue and save. And he's awesome at that. It's what he's come to do. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your good work, your kindness, your love for us. And we ask that you indeed would be put on display in our lives, uh, in the practical work of worship, in the practical work of evangelism, of missions. Lord, we want people to see you. We want people to understand who you are and to grow in love for you. And so, Lord, would you be glorified um, in your church? And Lord, we pray that you would uh, remind us that we are filled with your Holy Spirit, that we are given boldness so that we can step forward uh, powerfully into these works that you've prepared beforehand uh, for us, that we might walk in them. So, Lord, we look forward to you having your way. But above all, Lord, we want to, um, we want to know you more. We want to grow in faith more. We want to um, enjoy you more. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would give us more joy as we reflect upon the fact that you have saved us, that you've rescued us. Even though you didn't have to, even when we uh, were far from you, you stooped low. You humbled yourself to show us that loving kindness. And Lord, we want to say thank you and that we love you. Amen.